You know, if you say Anita Kumbo in the mirror three times. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. This is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. If you were a listener of the previous iteration of Hot Takedown, welcome back. And if you're new, we hope you like what you hear. Today is April 9th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hello, Sarah. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm well. On the line from Los Angeles is 538 sports editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? What's going on, Sarah? What a week. <laughs> I know. You guys, I'm so exhausted from all the sports. Why are they all at the same time? Why? I know. <laughs> I don't I don't even remember. Is this week always like this or did they move some stuff around? I don't do we just block it out every year? I I mean I remember always the you know March Madness, the Masters, baseball. It's always hap- it's happening at the same time. Are the NBA playoffs earlier? I think they're a little bit maybe a little bit earlier. I don't know. Maybe it's, not though. I don't yeah, know. It's usually mid April. I'm super tired. <laughs> There's so much stuff. I mean, I love it. It's fun, but it's so much. There's just a lot to follow. We should write a story about how much there is to follow, except we're too busy writing stories about everything else. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll probably get a chance to uh, roll back the, these hot takes that we just gave in uh, during that week in July. In which there's, there's like nothing. nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> I love the way there's all this going on and Neil says, I can't wait to get focused on baseball. (laughs) (laughs) You got, I mean, priorities. Yeah, obviously. The important things front of mind, right? (laughs) Well, on today's show, we'll dig into some of those many things going on in the sports world. We'll recap the final fours and own up to our predictions, good and bad. We'll check in on the NBA MVP race and look ahead to the playoffs, which tip off Saturday. We'll dig into the field for this weekend's Masters, and we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. We'll start off with the NCAA tournaments. We needed overtime Monday night to settle the men's basketball championship, but Virginia finally pulled away to finish their tournament of redemption. Jeff, remember when Virginia was down six at halftime to Gardner-Webb in the first round? That was fun, right? <laughs> I actually specifically remembering, uh, thinking, oh, I really feel bad for Virginia. Right? <laughs> They're going to lose to a 16 seed again. Yeah. It, and it's I mean, going to be hilarious and awful. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, we're going to have to write a story on yeah, this. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's also what I was thinking. We were talking about that during our live blog. Like, we're going to have to write a story about how Virginia will basically need to fold the program Disband after losing yeah, the team. But... Is Virginia, Virginia's like the Rasputin of basketball teams. Like, they have essentially been killed like four different times. Purdue, I mean, the Purdue game was over. Um, and they somehow made that work. And then they had the whole thing with the Auburn game and the foul. And then last night, I mean, last night they were almost going to lose again. Yeah. It's pretty crazy how they, they kept coming back. And, and I mean, you know, they were, at a number one seed, they were one of the best teams in the tournament to begin with. So it makes sense that they won, but it was so improbable how they did it, considering how bad they looked so often in the tournament, right? Yeah, and I'm, you know, a lot has been made about how this was like 
a proof of concept for Virginia that they sort of proved all of their critics wrong. Uh, and they did, you know, no one can ever take this um, tournament away from them. And I think it was one of the most exciting tournaments that we've seen in recent years. And, and to be the champion of that is um, really incredible. But at the same time, yeah, it's like, it just shows the, the sort of, you know, razor thin edge between being the national champion and like flaming out four rounds ago, <laughs> right. uh, that, that you have to have so much go right for you. Uh, and also, I mean, their players delivered again and again mm-hmm. in these huge situations. Like you think about Kyle Guy hitting. I think, I mean, can you imagine a more pressure-filled free-throw situation than being down by one, yeah. no, basically no time on the clock, and you're shooting three free-throws uh, that, that could either win the game, force overtime, or make you, you know, one of history's notable uh, chokers? Right. And to knock down all three and win the game was, I think, amazing. Like, yeah. I think that, that we all could relate to, you know, sort of the, the pressure that would be going through our heads. And so... Uh, not all of us could relate to the feeling of actually delivering uh, under that <laughs> circumstance. Right. <laughs> my, my one uh, quibble with these last few games is that I feel like the replay of the errant basketball def- grazing off someone's hand Ugh. is the new NFL catch rule. I mean, because it, it happened twice in, like, what, the final minute last night? And the first... They really look like the same play. I mean, I, yeah, you know, this we're we're using the word indisputable evidence. The words indisputable evidence, which is worrisome. You don't really want to hear that in a sports conversation. Yeah, it really isn't. And and um, especially that last play where DeAndre Hunter appeared to knock the ball out, and then you know, upon zooming in on the Zapruder tape, <laughs> we see like the movement of the Texas Tech guard's fingertips. Uh, you know that that it went off of his hand. I don't know where you draw the line. This is a debate that's been hashed out so many times and probably still will be forever, especially as we get more and more uh, high definition cameras on these replays and you can see every little, you know, pixel. But to me, if you slap the ball out, you know, of a dribbler's hand and it goes out of bounds, the way it has always been called for 99.9% of the history of basketball has been that it's out on the guy who tried to go for the steal. And so in some ways, it's almost like we're, we're kind of changing the way basketball has always been played because we do have this camera technology. And I wonder if there's a place to sort of have a reasonable standard be injected in where it's like, look, if we were never, ever going to overturn this call and it would never have occurred to anyone's brain, uh, you know, for almost the entire history of this sport to overturn this particular call, <laughs> maybe you shouldn't be allowed to overturn it on replay, even if there is evidence that the ball technically touched off, you know, the, the one player's hand. The problem is the replay is there to safeguard against truly egregious calls in real time and then what happens is and you know we saw this happen in soccer this happens in any sport that that has replay that it all of a sudden you're litigating things that were never up for debate to begin with right well what was interesting to me on that play was so we spent all this time looking at the pinky of the (laughs) texas tech player he was fouled 
like two seconds before that, before he lost the ball, before the ball was slapped out of his hands, and that was not called. And we can't go back and look at that. So what are we doing? Like we're focusing on the wrong things. I mean, I I understand it did actually touch him. Okay, that's the letter of the rule. But we just I think we've missed the point somewhere along the way here. And what we're trying to get right, we we miss a lot of things that we're now just getting wrong. And it's only going to get worse. So Neil, you picked the Cavs to win it all, and you did that before the tournament, not just I when did. we repicked the final four. <laughs> Although I did not get Texas Tech as um, the other uh, finalists, so right. my my perfect final four was was averted, was blemished. Yeah, just uh, <laughs> just you know, I may as well just tear up the bracket and burn it. <laughs> you did, however, win the five thirty eight men's basketball bracket. I so did. Congratulations and, well, on your winnings. Yes, and <laughs> maybe we'll talk about this in a second. But did you not win the women's side? I sure did. Yeah, so we've got two winners <laughs> here Woo! on this podcast. <laughs> I, for the record, did not enter either, nor would I have won. <laughs> yeah, that was gonna be what I was going to say. You made picks on this podcast repeatedly, and every time you had to re-pick, you made like slightly a worse pick somehow, and I'm not really sure how you did that. Yeah, first of all, first of all, if it wasn't for me, we would be the chalkiest podcast ever just <laughs> talking about the, how the favorites are going to win. It would be the most boring piece of audio entertainment out there. Jeff, I, I picked te- I picked Texas Tech. I had Texas Tech in the Final Four too, so <laughs> that that's the only Final Four team I got right. Second but. of all, we don't go back <laughs> and, and talk about when I said Auburn was going to beat North Carolina and was laughed out of the room. We only talk about my my hiccups. <laughs> well, those are more fun, obviously. <laughs> On the women's side, uh, Baylor won for the third time since 2005. They needed to withstand a dramatic comeback from Notre Dame, but they they held on for their win. Interestingly, they became the first team to beat UConn and Notre Dame in the same season since 2012-13 when they did it. (laughs) So Baylor is apparently the only team that can do that and never will do that. So that's cool. (laughs) Is is so. I, we spent so much time on the original incarnation of Hot Takedown talking about UConn, their dominance, almost lamenting it and always having to ask this question of like, is UConn being too good, bad for the women's uh, side of basketball? <laughs> yeah. And now has the rest of the country just caught up to them? Have they been taken down a peg? It, are, we're basically confronting that like – it's been what now three years uh, since UConn um, last won the championship. They're not, is the dynasty over? Like, am I overreacting, or it just feels like they are far from the foregone conclusion that that, that they um, were used to them being? I guess. So they've been in the Final Four. Sure, they're a lock to make the final. Right. <laughs> yeah. So maybe it's like three teams have passed them or, or something. This is hilarious that we're talking about this team that lost three games. As yeah. like the fall of an empire. Um, right. That was always a tricky question, whether UConn's dominance was good or bad for the sport. I think you ask most people during that time and they'll say it was great for the sport because of how much attention it got and and how it sort of just elevated um, it on a national stage. But that being said, I think we all agree this is more fun having at least three powerhouses yeah. instead of one. And I, I, I do think... UConn's dominance was good for the game because it got people talking about it and it gave it gave women's basketball a villain which I think you need to have as you grow as a sport you need to I mean college basketball is more interesting when you have someone to root for and against and so I think that was good and now there's sort of 
it's better to have more teams to root against, right? It's better to have these good, really good teams that manage to restock all the time. And I mean, I, as a as a fan of a team that lost three times this year to Baylor, um, I still think Baylor is good for the game and was good for the Big 12 this year, obviously, and elevated the play of everyone else, too. So I, I think women's basketball is just getting better all the time. I think that play in general has been elevated. And it makes me wonder, you know, the comparison has often been made, but you think about that era of men's college basketball where UCLA was just dominating every single season. Uh, and, and that is that sort of the, the one of the ladders, one of the rungs on the evolutionary ladder of a mm. sport where you go through a period where just someone is so far out ahead of everyone else that they dominate so much. And then that actually inspires other teams to kind of come at them and it kind of rises everyone up because yeah. it's much younger. You know, the tournament's much younger yeah, definitely. on the women's side. Yeah. More important than who's winning these games is the fact that we had a one point final and we've had other very close games come down the last second and we had that last year and and there there was a period where it was not only UConn winning but it was UConn winning and it was not even remotely close and I don't think that aspect of UConn's run was was good for the game I agree and and you can see that throughout the tournament there were overtime games for the women there were more overtime games for the women through the first two rounds than there were for the men there were really exciting you know last second shot kind of games and buzzer beaters and that i think that's good for the women's game i think that's that helps generate excitement and more people watching is just is just good for the sport okay let's move on to the nba after the 82-game regular season wraps up Wednesday, we'll finally be ready for the real season to get started, the playoffs, <laughs> the part that matters. Uh, but first, we need to settle one last important regular season debate, the most valuable player race. Here's SI Now's Robin Lundberg talking about MVP frontrunner Giannis Antetokounmpo's amazing performance this year. After watching what Giannis did to the Sixers, I was terrified. A switch has been flipped in his head. I am going to eat, and there is nothing you can do about it. If he keeps doing that, there's not a soul alive who can guard him. Neil, who do the metrics say should be MVP? Does does Giannis deserve it? It's actually kind of complicated this year, which makes it fun. I love these MVP debates where like you don't even have the stat heads necessarily be on the same side. So, oh, yeah, that is fun. Yeah, Giannis is leading the league in player efficiency rating over James Harden. It's always going to be Giannis versus Harden, I think, in, in any comparison that you look at. Uh, he also leads in NBA.com's player impact estimate uh, and uh, a newer stat called player impact plus minus, which uses sort of player tracking data and tries to kind of figure out your effect. Harden, on the other hand, it leads in win shares, box plus minus, value over replacement player, real plus minus, uh, real plus minus wins above replacement. Uh, and so some of this is because Harden has played a lot more minutes. He's had 72% of uh, the Rockets minutes, whereas Giannis has only played about 60% of the Bucks minutes. Um, but also on a per possession basis, some of these stats just flat out disagree. And a lot of it comes down to what you think about the balance between offense and defense. Mm. Because most of these uh, metrics, like Harden's offense, and we've talked about this, we've written about this, how this might be one of the best, if not the best, single offensive seasons in NBA history. If you look at, you know efficiency plotted against workload, Harden is like ending 40-plus percent of the Rockets' possessions, and yet he also (laughs) has this like insane average of about 120 
individual points created per 100 possessions. That's a crazy offensive season, uh, but the disagreements are about defense, where Giannis is a defensive player of the year candidate. The Bucks get about three and a half points per 100 possessions better when he's on the floor. Mm. And Harden has long had a very poor defensive reputation. Uh, and though he's worked at it a little in recent years, Houston's defense actually gets two and a half points worse <laughs> per 100 possessions with him on the court. And so it sort of boils down to that trade-off between offense and defense, even among the stat heads. And that's before you even get into some of the narrative things, which as we know, the NBA MVP is almost as much or more an, a narrative right. award than it is uh, about actual performance. Right. NBA loves their storylines, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, which side do you come down on in the Harden-Giannis debate? I sort of think of uh, the MVP award as as like the Emmys or the Golden Globes for television in that, you know, <laughs> you just don't want to give it to the Big Bang Theory every year. Give it to the new thing. Wait, in this case, James Harden is the Big Bang Theory. Yes, James Harden's the Big Bang Theory in this particular analogy. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I had my metaphor right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I like I like seeing a fresh faces win the award. That being said, it is really remarkable. You know, when I was a child and I would like collect basketball cards, I would just look at points per game. And anyone above 20, I was like, okay, this guy's good. That's how I know. <laughs> um, to see his numbers at 36, what did, I, don't, I don't even know what yeah, he's like above 36, 36 points per game. Uh, almost eight assists and almost seven rebounds. And he's making almost five threes per game. That's staggering. And like, if you look back at like Jordan 1988, Harden's averaging more points and also more rebounds and assists. So there is part of me that is like, mm, yeah, he probably should be a most valuable player. Um, and I really do think like in any other year, if if even if the Bucks weren't as successful as they were, I think Harden would have it. But the fact that the Bucks have had this amazing season and Giannis is obviously such a huge engine behind that and also such a good two-way player. I mean, we're also seeing the emergence of who I think most will agree is the best player in the world. And will be um, for quite some time. So probably we'll we'll lean with Giannis on this in this case. But it's a tough one. Do you think? I mean, how much value do you place on the overall package, the defense too? Does that matter in the modern NBA? It matters. It's not a scoring title. I mean, it, you have to look at all their contribution. But I, I do think, like you know, traditionally, defense, like everything else, you know, like in baseball, and you know, it's probably not. Most voters, it's probably not in the forefront of, of their decision making, but you know, certainly his defense is special. I mean, he could win Defensive Player of the Year and MVP. I mean, that's ridiculous. I find it interesting that when we talk about the MVP in baseball, we get into this debate about the value to a team, and you know, you can't have a MVP on a losing team, or there's you know arguments about or just that. like what does the word valuable right mean right what well, yeah gets parsed to exactly. within an inch of its life right. in, in baseball. <laughs> what does the word most mean? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> At least we're not what, debating. The what word does player? the word player yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but the NBA is so different because obviously if you're super good, 
your team is probably going to be also, at least in the playoffs, right? You're not probably going to miss the playoffs. Yeah, it's kind of impossible, although, I mean, maybe the Lakers uh, are a test case to the contrary on that. But it's (laughs) sort of impossible to play at, like, an MVP level and not... Almost, uh, you know, you could you could play at that level and sort of accidentally fall backwards into the playoffs. Like it just is going to happen when you play that well. And I think that's why, like, you don't get into these, you know, losing team versus whatever. And that that's also why it comes down to, you know, the thing that might hurt Harden is, like you said, Jeff, this like you know voter fatigue. Uh, There were a few cases where like Shaq and Jordan. Uh, got snubbed for MVPs because there were you know, the voters were just tired of seeing some. They were like, "Yeah, he's the most dominant player." Sha- Shaq was in say in two thousand one. I'm going to get all the Philly listeners mad at me. Uh, but Shaq was probably the MVP of that season. But Allen Iverson was just a better story, uh, and it seemed like he was sort of doing more with less. That you sort of had this parsing between most valuable and most dominant uh, in that season. And there were times in which Carl Malone beat out Jordan uh, right. because people were just like, yeah, we've already seen this. We've given this to Jordan right. so many times. We're tired of it. Uh, and so for Harden, you know, the Rockets actually declined record-wise this season. Uh, they have 53 wins this year. Last year, they were at 65 wins. So no matter what they do in the last game or two of the season, they're not going to have – they're going to have like a 10-win decline or more, uh, whereas for the Bucks. You know, they're on that upswing and they've kind of come out of nowhere. And that sort of gets into the narrative quality of it, too, where it's awfully hard to try to make a case for yourself as a repeat NBA MVP when your team actually does a lot worse, even relative to expectations. And you're trying to fend off a guy who seems who's younger. He seems like this, you know, more of a breakout star. And his team is sort of on the upswing. It's a really tough case to make, even though the numbers are like, yeah, you could probably, you know, pick one or the other and you'd be right. And, you know, maybe Harden's offense actually makes up for the edge that Giannis has in defense and then some. Yeah. There are num- a lot of numbers say that. Yeah. It, it reminds me um, sort of, I think it was 2012 when it was uh, Miguel Cabrera versus Mike Trout. Mike Trout, yeah. For AL MVP. And, and there was definitely Miguel Cabrera fatigue and Trout was this shiny new star um who Little was unbe- know, unbelievable trout would just be the uh, best player forever now <laughs> no now but we have i think people fatigue. did yeah. know that you know you think? i think people did know that and they wanted to recognize that um and they were excited by a new player no one was getting too excited about miguel caprera having another <laughs> just you know casually dominant year at the plate yeah do you think that hardens streak of 30 point games helps his case though too i mean that was a pretty cool streak that happened during the season have people forgotten about that already well they probably have because the season is just so, so yeah was that even this year long. <laughs> yeah but i think also you know one funny thing and maybe it's not going to play into anybody's thought process but you know at the same time that this is happening russell westbrook um harden's former teammate he locked up the triple double average for a third straight season you know, Russell Westbrook actually has had a little bit of a down season this mm. year, you know, and yet he's out here averaging a triple-double per game. It sort of makes you wonder, like, eh, maybe we shouldn't put so much credence on things like, you know, averaging a triple-double or, or these, you know, long-scoring yeah, streaks that, game, yeah, yeah, like Wilt Chamberlain mm-hmm, did. Mm-hmm. Just quick side note, I googled while Neil was talking 
Trout Cabrera MVP. It was an article from November in the New York Times by Nate Silver. <laughs> Headline, The Statistical Case Against Cabrera for MVP. That is such a great trolley 538 story. I love it. <laughs> that's, that's that's amazing. That's where it all started, folks. Yeah, wow, wow. <laughs> Without that story, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, let's talk about the playoffs, which begin on Saturday. Jeff, what are your big picture storylines you're most excited about? The most interesting thing to me is not having LeBron there, obviously. And then just how does that work? What are the playoffs like without him? I I know there's a lot of people sort of, oh, it's terrible for the league. It's good for the league and all this. But I'm just sort of intrigued. I mean, you do have possibly the Magic, the Nets, and the Pistons. Did the Pistons clinch yet? I don't even know. No, they didn't. But um, all three of those teams, who none of them have made it the last few years. And I, I think the Magic and the Nets have some of the longest droughts in the league that are ending. So uh, it is nice to see some new teams in there. And the Bucks too, who, how long has it been since they won a series? Neil, what does our model say about the playoffs? Uh, so you, you know, this might come as a surprise to both of you, but, uh, we do have the Golden State Warriors favored Wait, to what? win the finals. I know it's a shock. <laughs> uh, we give them really a crazy, uh, number, but it does actually kind of check out when you look at the uh, the Vegas markets as well uh, in terms of the implied probabilities. But we give them an 80% chance of coming out of the West I mean, and a 62% chance of winning the championship. So it's, I mean, it's crazy because um, I don't know if it's just the fact that there wasn't quite that dominant team that sort of emerged during the regular season that seemed like they could unseat the Warriors in the West, like the Rockets. I mean, the Rockets ultimately came within a really ill-timed cold shooting streak right. in Game 7 last season of actually beating the Warriors. Uh, but, uh, you know, they've taken a little bit of a step back, you know. I don't know if anybody would really trust the Jazz or, or the Thunder or the Nuggets to or the Blazers even to be sort of competitive with them uh, in, in a playoff series. And so, you know, I think that 80% chance of making the finals is a lot of what's driving that 62% chance of winning the finals. The East seems a lot more interesting where... We don't really have a favorite. Uh, we give the Raptors a 44% chance, and we give the Bucks a 43% chance. Right. So it's like neck and neck, uh, and that's the way it's been most of the season between the Bucks and the Raptors. Uh, and I'm also just intrigued by that kind of next tier of teams, if they are actually in the next tier, because I think in their minds, the Sixers and the Celtics uh, belong up at the top of the East pecking order or near it. Uh, and, and they sort of didn't show that all the time during the regular season. But, um, you know, they, they still have the rosters to potentially, um, you know, win in the playoffs. Uh, and so, yeah, and I should mention the Pacers. They're probably in that conversation, too, uh, even though... You know, it's just a testament to their grit and their, uh, their, their coaching, uh, that they've been able to kind of stick in there without Victor Oladipo. So I'm really interested in this East playoff, uh, situation. And then the West is like, eh, maybe someone can compete. Maybe the Rockets will do something, but you know, it, it's probably going to be the Warriors. Right. So in the East, if the season ended today, which it almost does, <laughs> it actually ends Wednesday. Um, but the 4-5 matchup would be Boston, Indiana. 3-6 would be Philly, Brooklyn. 2-7 would be Toronto, Orlando. And 1-8 would be Milwaukee, Detroit. Any of those stand out to anyone? Well, Celtics-Pacers seems like it 
is going to be a real, you know, grinded out slugfest, you know, type yeah. type of series, which I like. Uh, you know, you got to get those early round, um, you know, competitive series where you can, because most of the yeah. time yeah, yeah. there aren't those. Right. Uh, so that's the one that I've kind of got circled among those. Yeah, the Pacers are a really interesting team. I mean, without Oladipo, they're just a completely different team, right? Um, so in the West, the matchups are um, the one eight. Obviously, Golden State is facing the Clippers. Uh, two seven is the Nuggets and the Spurs. Three six is Houston and Oklahoma City, and four five is Portland and Utah. Houston, Oklahoma City is interesting. It's sort of a, I mean, yeah, that's the number three team in our um, Carmelo ratings, our power ratings here at five thirty eight. Uh, and versus the number five team, and that's like mm. in the whole league, yeah. and they're and they're potentially facing off. Uh, is that one locked in? And yeah, that, that's not quite locked in yet, but I mean, it's yeah. yeah. And, and <clears> so still... that could be, you know, I okay. feel bad for um, whichever team has to lose that because, you know, it's it's just such a it's a numbers game in the West, and you have you know the Warriors, but then you have this subclass of about five really good teams that if they were in the East. They might be competing for, you know, they, they probably wouldn't uh, compete for the top seed, but they would be in the mix for, you know, seed two or three or whatever. And instead, they're being kind of relegated to, you know, a first round loss right. in, in the in the West playoffs. Well, this will be interesting as we go along here. It'll be fun to watch the playoffs actually get started. And I'm glad that we still get to watch both uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo and James Harden play more before we figure out who is the MVP. I mean, we could see them in the finals. Could you even imagine? (sighs) So good. As we were told throughout the NCAA tournament, it's time for the Masters. A tradition (laughs) unlike any other. That's so true, Neil. I, I feel like I've heard that before. The best golfers in the world will tee off Thursday at Augusta National. Rory McIlroy is the favorite going in, but 43-year-old Tiger Woods is not far off the pace. Here's Sean Zach talking to John Swantek on the Talk of the Tour podcast. When you see Rory win the players, you kind of think, yeah, he's definitely better than Tiger right now. But then you see him play that match against Tiger, and it's like, you know who's better at making pars and grinding out a round? Tiger Woods is so much better at that, I think, mm-hmm. than Rory is. Tiger is just so rock solid. you got to imagine that the ladder kind of helps him at Augusta. So Rory is playing about as well as you can right now with seven top 10 finishes so far this year. But Tiger is also having a great start to the season after finishing last year with a tour championship win. Jeff, who's got the better shot this week? I think it has to be Rory. I mean, it's interesting about that clip because he's talking about match play. And match play is just a totally, for whatever reason, maybe it's the completely different rules. Um, (laughs) Maybe that. (laughs) Who knows? Who can say? That's the first thing that comes to mind. To answer your question, it has to be Rory. Um, he obviously has a lot of demons at Augusta, a, a couple sort of infamous meltdowns, and we've obviously seen players overcome that um, in the past. But that that course, you know, can really break your will. If if it go, I mean, look what happened to Spieth, you know, after he won on that hole where he had his tin cup moment. <laughs> um, it's, it's never been the same. I can't, I can't really blame him. <laughs> so, I mean, this is the sort of missing piece for Rory's career Grand Slam. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's the knock on him and, and Neil wrote about it or touched on it this week. The knock on him is his putting. Obviously, it's always been his putting. Can, ever since he was, you know, a kid, he could crush the ball. Um, and it's a very hard place to putt. But right. 
he's putting a little better. So, I mean, like, you know, last year he was, he was putting the best he's ever did at Augusta for three rounds. And then he had a complete meltdown on Sunday. Um, with regards to the putter, he was missing everything. Um, so it's hard to maintain it. You know, if he comes out there and starts sinking a bunch of putts, you know, let's see him do that on Sunday. Neil, you've written a lot about the aging curve in golf. Is Tiger running out of time for another green jacket? Yeah, I mean, I I think people have been talking about him running out of time for a while, but Mm -hmm. like for other reasons other than uh, purely based on his age. But now it's kind of funny because he is playing really well again. I'll own up to a bad prediction. I thought that he never, ever would be uh, a factor in uh, the major conversation again after you know not just the scandals but the years of injuries and and re-injuries and and just you know not playing at all hardly two years ago so it's been incredible to see him actually come back and play as well as he has in a long time uh but now he's 43 and uh only seven majors have been won by golfers who were 43 or older and the oldest of all time was obviously jack nicholas in 1986, he won the Masters at age 46. So, you know, Tiger, it, it, it's kind of a cruel uh, twist that he's sort of getting back to the version of Tiger that we saw really back around, you know, when when he was injured uh, that first time at the 2008 U.S. Open. Um, he's sort of approximating that caliber of play, uh, and, and he's sort of doing it just in time to sort of sneak in before uh, father time really starts taking. <laughs> Taking away your skills as a golfer, um, I mean, he's going to be a killer on the on the Champions Tour oh once, once they get into that. <laughs> uh, but that's a few years off. Um, so yeah, it, it, it does seem like this is his last best chance or one of his last best chances to win uh, the Masters, and he's been stuck on four Masters wins since 2005, which is sort of mind blowing when you think about it, uh, because. That was the first major that he won. Mm -hmm. He broke records in 1997. uh, And it's been such a part of the fabric of his career story that to think that he... It's been so long since yeah. he since he won there, and yet still, you know, he's had so many moments that we sort of think of as being these indelible uh, Augusta moments, like the time that the chip, you know, hung on the lip of the <laughs> the hole and then fell in, uh, and that was you know, almost 15 years ago, which is really shocking. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, how much he's sort of a victim of his own success. He was so successful that it um, brought so many more people into golf. And so now all these, you know, little kids who looked up to him now are beating him. (laughs) I think you're um, totally right, Sarah. I think the difference is the pack has caught up to him, not that he's moved back towards the pack. Um, even even at his age. But, I mean, just look at the field. I mean, you have Rory, Ricky Fowler, who's obviously played great at Augusta. You have Dustin Johnson, who's looking for, you know, his first Masters win. John Ram, all these guys. Uh, Justin Thomas, there's just, just, like, a lot of, like, really dangerous. There's, there's probably 15 players that could win, and I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um, Brooks Kepka has won three majors in the last two years and, yeah. and no one talks about him. He only wins majors. That's all so, he does. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if that guy's on, he's the best player in the world. Um, and there, there's even more, you know, younger guys coming up, you know, look at Bryson DeChambeau and, and all these other players that are, are sort of emerging. Um, we haven't even mentioned Jordan Spieth, who's 
seems to be lost at sea currently. But his record at Augusta, I think it's like six starts, and, and every single time he's been in the either the top 25. He's never finished worse than tied for 11th at Augusta. Whoa. That's, wow. I, I can't is... even comprehend that. That's wow. amazing. But, uh, you know, Jeff, uh, you mentioned earlier about the putting um, at Augusta, and, you know, it does have that reputation as being like uh, only the most skilled putters survive. But what I found was interesting in some of the research I've done is that there have been guys that are terrible putters in terms of their um, season-long track record that when, in fact, it happens frequently at, at Augusta, it's just almost totally random who has a good putting week. And the, it seems like the best thing that you can do is be a really good ball striker mm. and sort of do everything you can leading up to uh, getting on the green and then just sort of like hope and pray that your putts, you know, land or you do, you do enough, um, to, to win. And I think in both Tiger and Rory's cases, that's a good thing though, because, you know, Tiger has kind of slipped as a putter in recent years and people are like, Oh, you know, what, what's gone wrong with his putting stroke? Putting is freaking random, you know, like there's a, it's, it's the least <laughs> predictable skill as you're on the putt putt yeah. course. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, um, you know, it's the least predictable skill uh, that we can measure in a golfer. And so in some ways, it's like a source of comfort for some of these guys that are really strong off the tee, really strong with their irons is, you know, all you have to do is just put yourself in a position to get lucky with your putts and then hope that it all comes together. And I think the other thing, and, and we've seen this actually in, in Tiger's um, Masters wins, is that the par fives there in particular you can really score. I mean, and we saw this with Bubba Watson won it twice being a, a monster hitter is that there, there are definitely holes out there to get eagles and birdies and places to score if, if you're a big hitter. So the fact of the matter is all these guys are big hitters. Um, Francisco Melinari, maybe aside, you know, he's more of a short game putting guy, but he, even he's, you know, driving the ball farther than he used to. Well, that's another thing to keep in mind. The course at Augusta is 550 yards longer than it was when Tiger first won it in 1997. So the course has also changed because of Tiger. Tiger proofing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Rory does seem to be, I mean, he's the favorite and he does seem to be in, a, in good shape for it. But Tiger will have to see if this is his last chance to, to wear the green jacket. Let's move on to our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, but many don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, the rabbit hole belongs to me. So on Friday night, Jorge Polanco of the Minnesota Twins hit the 325th cycle in Major League history. This was the 11th cycle for the Twins. I am not counting those of the Washington Senators. They don't count. And uh, also the first for the Twins since 2009. Now, I didn't notice this as it happened. I saw it later because the Twins were losing. And they were losing badly. They had given up five runs to the Phillies in the first inning. So then I switched to watching women's basketball and sort of ignored the rest of the Twins game. So that made me wonder how often that happens because it seems like if you have a guy hitting getting four hits theoretically one of the, at least one of them has an rbi attached to it your team should be doing okay right 
Well, so of the 272 cycles since 1908, which is as far back as baseball reference goes, only 43 have been in a losing effort, only 16%. So that's kind of interesting. So yes, if a guy on your team is hitting for the cycle, you should be winning. (laughs) That's a little higher than maybe I would expect in terms of that because it does seem difficult for like a single baseball player we always talk about this a single baseball player has such little impact that even with those four hits of like escalating value you think it would be more possible for them to lose like what's the cycle equivalent of like basketball you know it's like having a a triple double with like 30 points or whatever those probably like never lose or seldom ever lose we should ask russell westbrook right (laughs) let's ask russell westbrook uh or, or maybe james harden well the other thing that was interesting to me about this is that polanco is a shortstop that seemed unusual. I mean, you need to have enough speed to get that triple, which a shortstop would probably have, but also enough power to get the home run. And power hitting shortstops are still a pretty recent phenomenon in the grand scheme of baseball. So I looked that up on Baseball Reference, and only 29 of the cycles since 1908 have been from shortstops. Almost half of those are since the 1990s. So that sort of plays into my assumption. <laughs> As we call it, the shirtless shortstop era. Right. Yes. The shirtless shortstop era. Exactly. All of the, uh, the big uh, shortstops that came about in the last 20 or so years. I looked at other positions, too, that have hit for the cycle just for fun. Not too surprisingly, no pitchers have ever hit for the cycle. If only Micah Owings had, had pitched like just a few more years. How has Madison Bumgarner not hit for the cycle? I I well, he has like a really his goal. You know, right? he hits a lot of home runs, but his batting average is surprisingly low. Well, I think a, he just swings so for the. He's a pitcher. Well, he's also a pitcher. <laughs> yeah. There've also only been five cycles from designated hitters. That's disappointing. Which I guess is also slightly opportunity that hasn't been around for super long. But shortstop isn't. Aside from those positions, is one of the rarest position to hit a cycle from. There have been 28 from second baseman, sort of the same thing as a shortstop. 15 from catchers, and the catcher ones are the best cycles. Carlton Fisk hit a cycle in 1984. I did not know that. The triple he hit there was his only triple of the season. Probably not super surprising. I'm calling error on that triple. Well, so the most... Sight unseen, (laughs) there was an error on that triple. The most entertaining cycle I found, and and I really encourage people to look up the highlights of this, was Benji Molina's from 2010, in which both his double and his triple glanced (laughs) off the glove of the outfielder. They both should have been errors. There's that that is a fake cycle. That should not have been a cycle. Slap an asterisk on it. Yeah, exactly. Those um those triples. I do wonder how often they are. They're real triples and not um bad route aided triples. A couple of other fun cycles in history. Favorite of the pod, Christian Yelich, had two cycles last season that came just three weeks apart, and both of them were against the Reds, which is super weird. The Reds have only had four cycles total in their history, and only one since 1960, which was Eric Davis in 1989. There's only one team without a cycle. Can you name it? Ooh. <laughs> I cannot. The Rays. No, the Rays have had actually several. The, Zero. hmm... The Marlins. Yeah, the Mar- it's the Marlins. Okay. The Marlins have never had a cycle. I was, it, had, it had to be one of those expansion teams. And I was about to say Rockies, and I was like, yeah, definitely the Rockies have had cycles. Yeah, they have. <laughs> That's the, is that the easiest park to get a cycle in? <laughs> yeah, probably, honestly. 
Um, and a, a one other interesting note, uh, before Polanco's cycle, the most recent cycle for the Twins was from Michael Kadire. That was in 2009. He went on to hit one for the Rockies. He became just the third player to hit for the cycle in both the American League and the National League. Can you name the other two? You can never name the other two. You'll never. You'll never Are they it. stars? Uh, ish. Eh, ish. Have we heard of these? Players? Yes. So John Olerud, first I've for the Mets. I've definitely heard of John Olerud. And then for the Mariners. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought maybe you guys might get him. Bob Watson was the other one. one. He hit one for the Astros and one for the Red Sox. When you had all these old-timey cycles, you know, like the Naplajoy, Tris Speaker days, was it It was the home run that was the hard Oh, probably. Right? Well, how many of those were inside the park home runs also? Oh, never. Like, I don't know. There has not actually oh. been a cycle with an inside the park home run. I learned on wow. Wikipedia as I was looking into that's really su- That's actually really surprising yeah. given – I mean maybe it's the 1908 – oh, you not even including the baseball reference 1908 cutoff, but like even ones before that. Right, They didn't right. have it. At least wow. they're not they're – not, they're not recorded that way. So that's well, the back thing. then we they were just sure. like that. That's what they called home. They, they didn't make a distinction because all the home runs were inside the park. <laughs> right. Yeah. No one could hit them it's out. Like who could hit a ball past this ring of uh, horses and bu- buggies <laughs> that we've gathered out in the outfield. <laughs> they didn't even have a name. <laughs> it's a quadruple. Ah, uh, yes. Back in the day. <laughs> That'll do it for this week's show. Thank you guys for joining me. Thank you listeners for listening. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. Remember, this is a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe, review, and rate us. It really does help other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening, and talk to you next time.